Hey, it's Drex from This Week Health Cyber and Risk Community, and I want to invite you to our next webinar. It's going to focus on what else? Defending health data. I'll be chatting with experts from Rubrik and Microsoft. Register right now at thisweekhealth.com slash rubric webinar. That's all one string, R-U-B-R-I-K webinar, thisweekhealth.com slash rubric webinar. See you online soon. Today on This Week Health, if you have a product that is deemed to be free or you think it's free, the reality is you are the product, right? And the product is you and your data and the institution, in this case, is Facebook's ability to go sell that data back onto the marketplace. And the more data they can collect about you, the more valuable you are to them as a customer. It's Newsday. My name is Bill Russell. I'm a former CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week Health, a channel dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. Special thanks to CrowdStrike, Proofpoint, ClearSense, Meditech, Cedar sinai Accelerator, TalkDesk, and Dr. First, who are our Newsday show sponsors for investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. All right, it's Newsday, and today we're joined by Ryan Witt, healthcare leader for Proofpoint. Ryan, welcome back to the show. Hey, great to be here, Bill. Thanks for the time. A lot of stuff going on. We're finally going to touch on the topic that I've avoided for the last couple of weeks, which is the Oracle, what I'm calling the day after event that they did. We're going to get to that. That'll be the second or third story we cover. But I want to start with you on the Facebook is receiving sensitive medical information from hospital websites. So this one's out there. I've actually talked to a handful of health systems that were mentioned in here, and they have since taken some action on this. Let's just give the context real quick. So this is a joint article between the markup and stat news. The markup tested the websites of Newsweek's top 100 hospitals in America on 33 of them. We found the key tracker called the Metapixel sending Facebook a packet of data whenever a person clicked a button to schedule a doctor's appointment. The data is, is connected to an IP address, an identifier, and the computer's which is the computer's mailing address. That's an interesting way of saying that. And can generally be linked to a specific individual or household creating a receipt of the appointment. So some of the data that it's sending over can be things like the name of the button, schedule online, name of the doctor. You have things going across like diagnosis or search terms like pregnancy termination, topic of the week. You have like Alzheimer's, drop down, any drop downs could be sent over as well is what they found. So let's start with why do people use Facebook's Metapixel? I think people are shocked that you would use this tool, but this is a very effective tool in the marketing world to collect information. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple of things you got to say here about, about that tool and about Facebook's role in this and the marketing or advertising sort of just world generally. The reality is really between Facebook and Google and Amazon is kind of one of those up and comers, like they dominate the world of online marketing. And if you have any sort of product or service that you're trying to promote collectively to the marketplace and you want to use online or use online as your vehicle, you have to essentially use these sort of platforms. So they're very appealing to advertisers. I think this is a really concerning development, one that I don't find surprising at all, to be candid with you. We've seen a lot of similar activity 
from Facebook in particular about this sort of data gathering. And it just brings back the old adage, which I think those of us in tech have realized for a while now, maybe maybe more broadly in the marketplace, it's becoming also known that if, if there is no such thing as free, right? If you have a product that is deemed to be free or you think it's free, the reality is you are the product, right? right. And the product is you and your data and the institution in this case is Facebook's ability to go sell that data back onto the marketplace. And the more data they can collect about you, the more valuable you are to them as a customer and the more they can monetize that data right across the marketplace. And so make no mistake about it. You might think you're getting this free experience, but there is a cost and that cost is being borne out with articles like this, where data about you and your activity is being collected, it's being sold by Facebook and by other aggregators across the marketplace. It's interesting. I'm not going to be an apologist for CIOs here, but some of this is going to sound like being an apologist for CIOs. In my organization, the marketing team went to a third party outside. The, the website didn't really fall under my purview, as odd as that sounds. Like I gave them a server to run. And in some cases, you don't even give them a server to run it. It's hosted somewhere else and those kind of things. We give them feeds. We give them integration points and that kind of stuff. But the marketing team feels like they're technical enough. And they have their marching orders of, hey, we need to personalize this. We need to make search more personal and find the right doctor at the right time. And so they're bringing all their marketing tools to bear on the problem. And the CIO, quite frankly, I'm thinking a handful of systems I've done work with, the marketing team is off doing their own thing on this website right. for the most part. And I wasn't even consulted on ours, like, hey, you know, what tools, privacy, that kind of stuff, because... The minute they would have said something like this, I would have said, hey, if you're using a Facebook or Google anything, we've got to have a conversation about privacy because that's their business model, right? Their business model, as you just said, is data. So if that's their business model, we've got to be careful of what data we're going to be sharing given our HIPAA status and those kinds of things. And also um, just being good stewards of data and being a pillar. These, these health systems are pillars of their community. So... There's an onus on them, a responsibility on them to be good stewards of that data. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see where this leads. Will the ONC look at this and say, hey, we're going to dole out fines, HIPAA fines and that kind of stuff based on the information? Or is it just going to be one of those things they found, they made people aware of? If health systems don't remediate this in the next couple of months, I would assume most health systems are remediating this immediately. This is the kind of thing right. that people get pretty. The algebra on this is pretty clear. And I've seen this too frequently with, particularly in Facebook, but others in big tech. And the algebra is simple. The money they accrue, the revenue they accrue from doing activity like this greatly exceeds any sort of fines they receive from regulators. And they've been fined quite frequently for regulators, let's be clear about this, but the algebra still works out in their favor. Well, thing I want to point out here is, in this article alludes to, there's no obvious examples of privacy violations. I'm not entirely sure about that, but okay, let's take it at face value. There's no obviously privacy violations, but there have been other examples with other 
websites in particular. And I think the one that comes to mind is Patients Like Me. Yes. Who that used to be the website that was really for patients who had some sort of acute ailment and they were able to go there and share their experiences with other patients that were like them. And that website was also collecting data about, about their users. And nothing they did was particularly untowards. They didn't violate any sort of privacy regulations. But what ended up happening is when they sold their data to one of these aggregators, who then collected data from Facebook and Google and whatever sort of feeds gave them other gave them data, they found the aggregators were able to start putting the pieces of the puzzle together. So data that was all in each individual sort of channel or sort of stovepipe de-identified actually got built up and they were able to do identification. And so I don't know if the ONC has the right sort of framework and legal, legal sort of structure to understand how to find on that sort of basis, because maybe they're sailing close to the line, but they haven't crossed the line. But it doesn't mean that there's not a significant possibility that there's a privacy exposure coming forward. That's interesting. We talk about de-identified data and the use of de-identified data. And I've had a data scientist, I've had several data scientists on here who said that you know, there's no such thing it could, because you can with, with all the different data stacks that we have and bringing to bear and, and those kinds of things on this, eventually you can piece these things back together. But now that's not, right. that's a, that was a pretty broad statement, although they were pretty, pretty adamant on that position of, you give me enough data, I'm going to tell you exactly who this de-identified data is. And, but that's the reality. We're, there's this push and pull going on when we talk about being more relevant to our consumers, being more relevant to our patients and really knowing who they, so it, it takes knowing who they are and then, and, and then providing them information that is relevant to who they are, as opposed to just right. generic to who they are. And the, and, and so a lot of health systems are going down this path of saying, all right, we are going to start buying these data stacks. We want to be as relevant as Amazon is. When, when you go to Amazon, you're going to get a different set of books recommended to you than I'm going to get. Now, I understand health data is a lot more sensitive than the books I'm reading. But with that being said, that's what we're trying to do is create that custom experience of coming in and having relevant data be delivered to me. So they're starting to buy, buy these the blocks of data that we have about our community. They're starting to piece them together. And then they're starting to meld in the other information they have, which is the highly sensitive data so that we can build these, these kinds of experiences. The question becomes, outside of logging in and telling them, hey, I'm Bill Russell, now go ahead and put all your activity to work and show me who, what you want. That almost has to be the front door, doesn't it? Doesn't it have to be some permission-based, I'm going to tell you who I am so that you can start, you can start customizing the information you're giving back to me? I mean, I think that is, that's the classic form of permission-based marketing or permission-based sort of customer experience. And so, yes, the moment you allow that, then you can, you have a completely different sort of construct. I think it's also worth probably mentioning here is that when I think about those that I interact with and the spectrum of sort of age, ages of people I interact with, millennials, and those are certainly even under 30, care a lot less about privacy. They just it doesn't seem to matter to them so much. So maybe the marketplace will move to a point where this sort of story becomes a non-factor to some degree or to some stage. I'm not entirely sure about that. 
particularly even the broader sort of privacy implications with GDPR and and the push in this country to have something similar from a legislation sort of standpoint, whether we get there or not, it's a different story. But it's it's there is kind of the yin and yang here in terms of what is what are people's attitude towards privacy with these sort of services. All right, we'll get back to our show in just a minute. I want to tell you about the podcast that I am the most excited about right now that I am listening to as often as I possibly can. And that is the town hall show that we launched on the community channel, This Week Health Community, and it airs on Tuesdays and Thursdays. What I've done is I have essentially recruited these great hosts who are coming in and they're tapping people in their networks and having conversations with them about the things that are frontline kind of stuff. So it's it's technical deep dives, it's hot button issues, it's tactical challenges, it's all the stuff that is happening right there where you live on a daily basis. We have some great hosts on this show. We have Charles Boise, who's a, a data scientist, Craig Richardville, Lee Milligan, Reed Steffen, who are all CIOs. We have Jake Lancaster, Brett Oliver, who are CMIOs. We have Mark Weissman, who is a former CMIO and host of the CMIO podcast, and now a CIO at Title Health. And we also have the incomparable Sue Shade, who is fantastic. And I'm, I'm really excited about the fact that she's tapping into her network and having some great conversations as well. I'd love for you to tune into these episodes. I am learning a ton myself. You can subscribe on our community channel, This Week Health Community. You can do that on iTunes, on Spotify, on Google, on Stitcher, you name it. We're out there and you can subscribe there and start having a listen yourself. All right, let's get back to our show. Why don't we have a GDPR at this point? I mean, when I look at this thing, I'm like, all right, the the consumer has rights, has control of their data, should be notified on these. It surprises me that we don't have something like this already. You think there's legislative appetite to do these kind of things? Well, no, actually what I think is happening is I think we have large lobbying groups on behalf of the organizations with money who need the data, who are making sure that- Making sure it does not happen. It does not happen. And uh, I don't know. I'm, I'd like the patients to have a complete set of data rights for sure. I'd like patients to have that. Consumers, I think, should have it as well. But patients, I think, should have the ability to say, here's how I want my data used. Here's how I want it used for research. Here's how I want it used for sharing. I want it to be able to use it. We should be able to do this. It's interesting, this whole who truly owns the data, who owns the patient data is a, a very interesting, philosophical, hotly debated sort of topic and does actually lead us to the next story, right? Which is the, the Cerner Oracle story and the evolution there and Oracle's desire to create this sort of like national patient registry. Again, who would own that data? Right. <laughs> uh, who has the gateway to that data, a different story. But anyway, I think it's that's a very interesting sort of discussion. And I know many health systems feel they own that data. I know some EHRs feel they own that data and patients, of course, feel, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm a stakeholder in this discussion as well. Yeah, so the article we chose is from Chile Mark Research and it's uh, more hubris than humility. And it says Oracle aims too high with Cerner acquisition announcements. By last Thursday, Oracle had closed its much-anticipated acquisition of Cerner. The next day, Oracle hosted a webinar 
to discuss their vision and intentions for Cerner and more broadly, Oracle in healthcare. The big visionary picture was provided by none other than Larry Ellison himself, while other Oracle reps chimed in on more mundane aspects of the acquisition. And as you said, I mean, essentially what I took from it is they, it's a data play for Oracle. Oracle sees it as a data play and they're going to try to find different ways to, to create value out of that data. But what I'm hearing from healthcare organizations and Cerner clients is, you know what, we've got a lot to fix over here on the right. transactional side before you start having these aspirations over here of what we're going to do with voice and all these really cool things that they talked about. I think they're, they're hoping that Oracle has a, a firm grasp on the challenges that Cerner clients are currently facing and listen to those and put some resources behind it. Yeah, I kind of see the same thing. I think broadly, it's a good thing for healthcare for a couple of reasons. One is Epic definitely has a lead, right? When it comes into the EHR sort of implementation and adoption, this will, I think, strengthen Cerner and that will bring competition to the marketplace. That can't be a bad thing, right? Now, back to this sort of hubris and humility, can Oracle solve all the ills of healthcare? Probably not. And we've been here many, many times when those in big tech had these sort of grandiose visions and idea, ideas about how to go solve healthcare problems and kind of quickly decided that it wasn't doable, wasn't possible, and exited sort of stage left. This probably won't happen as the next stage left. I mean, when you buy Cerner, I mean, you're firmly planting your flag in the healthcare industry sort of landscape. Now, can they put together a solution that will truly compete against Epic and be a really, really viable competitor? Perhaps. I mean, that would be interesting to kind of see. I think the other part that's interesting as well is that, I mean, revenue cycle management has always been a little bit of a challenge for the healthcare industry. They haven't really solved that problem. Uh, I think Oracle's got deep expertise in that area. So maybe the combination of sort of Oracle Oracle applications and, and Cerner, Cerner sort of clinical expertise can offer an interesting alternative there. So we'll see how that, how that plays out. But the whole grander vision about building out this sort of national patient registry and this place where any sort of provider or any sort of institution can tap into this one sort of database to, to access your patient record. I mean, I think that's, we're a long, long, long way from that. You know, Ryan, this reminds me of Bill Russell coming into healthcare circa 2011. And I looked at this and I'm like, what is the big problem here? What are you, what's wrong with you people? And I have since learned what was wrong with everyone. And now I've become part of that. So they're, they're recommending a national EHR database eliminates EHR data fragmentation. Doctors in an emergency can instantly access all your EHRs and public health officials can see anonymized national health data. The challenge with this data, and I, I believe we've made progress, but the challenge with this data is we have millions of data entry clerks. They are nurses, they are doctors, they are whatever. And they're, they're not great data entry clerks. We haven't done the governance around the data itself. So you see some data, it means one thing. And that same data means something else to somebody else. And so the, the complexity of the data itself and the governance model around the data 
makes it so that it's not just a straight up tech problem, right? We're just going to take this data, do this and share it in this way. Now we've, we've now got USCDI, we've got a lot of different initiatives coming down the pike, which are trying to normalize that data with, with standards, which is going to make it a lot easier. And I think the pandemic drove some of this because when the pandemic first hit, I think we saw, we saw how much of a problem we really had on, on not only the health system side of getting the data to the CDC and the government, but how much of a problem they had, as well as the states had in receiving the data. They're like, their, their systems almost failed under that. Well, they, they did for the most part fail under that pressure and had to be redesigned in the midst of the pandemic. And so I think we've made a lot of progress there and Oracle can definitely help us to uh, make more progress there. But I, I think the thing that rubbed a lot of health systems and health, health healthcare providers the wrong way was, my gosh, it was just a rerun of every other movie we saw where big tech came into healthcare and said, we're here to solve your problems. You guys have screwed this up for 25, 30 years. No. We've got the answer. Here you go. Like, like, like smart tech people don't exist in healthcare. We needed them to come save the day. And so that's yeah. the thing that just rubs us the wrong way, I think. Buffett, Amazon, and maybe JPMC or a big bank came in. Oh, yeah, do. yeah. Yep. That, they, yeah. Something like, peace out. This can't work. <laughs> yeah, it was Chase, Amazon, and Berkshire Hathaway, yeah. which, again, really smart companies. And they got into it and said, yeah, this is, this is a problem. Not that their statements were wrong. I mean, you have Warren Buffett saying that healthcare costs are a leech on the U.S. economy. And he's not wrong as it keeps going up. And we need to address that. not wrong. And, and Ellison wasn't wrong with how he was trying to go pitched on that webinar and, and what they referenced in that article. Ellison's not wrong in terms of his vision, what he thinks that the U.S. healthcare system ought to look like. I'm just not sure he can solve it. I'm not sure he solves it the way that health system would want him to solve it. But in terms of selling or, or, or presenting to us the vision of where we need to go, there's a lot of really good there. Yeah, I've analyzed a lot of the tech players and how they're thinking about and going after healthcare. Because I want patient-centric interoperability, I like Apple's model the best. Although Apple doesn't really have a model, they're just sort of hacking things into the Apple health record over time, but it has my medical record and it has a bunch of other things associated with it as well. But I like that because it's patient centric. Everything else is health system centric at the end of the day, because if you're trying to monetize the data, giving it back to the patient is not the best way to monetize the data because you lose control of, of the data when it goes to the patient, because now the patient can sell that data to whoever they want to sell it to. So not trying to be the Apple fanboy part of this uh, Tuesday segment, but I agree with you. I mean, Apple's the only vendor that has kind of compelled me to want to store some of my health data in a kind of central repository. And I think the more, the more that happens, the more we see these sort of initiatives starting to take hold, you have to wonder how long before health, the health industry start to say, we, have, we need to find a way to incorporate that into the broader EHR. 
And I love the number of health systems that have partnered with Apple to get that data over there. I mean, it's it really has been a, a strong move. We'll see where that goes. We're going to close out on this. We're going to close out on staffing and people. We have two stories here, and maybe we'll just talk about them in high level instead of doing the story. So the greatest wealth transfer in history, what's happening and what are the implications? Now, that's an old story. I pulled that out from a long time ago. And then the, the other is I want to talk about staffing in healthcare IT and specifically what people can do to get jobs in healthcare IT. So let's start with the greatest transfer of wealth in history. Baby boom generation, I'm going to summarize this very quickly. Baby boom generation is moving on. That generation has accumulated a lot of wealth over the years. And to be honest with you, they didn't even have to do that well financially to accumulate wealth that is that changes somebody's lifestyle if they receive it. So for example, if my parents who are part of the baby boom generation die and they leave me $200,000, which is not a ton of money, but still at that given point in time, that's a lifestyle changing amount of money. I could take off for the year. My spouse could take off for the year and those kind of things. And so that's the kind of month, that's a low threshold. This article talks about like, 20% of people aren't handing anything to their children, but 80% are, and it's in that range to far greater than that. The other thing I will tack onto this is that during the pandemic, more people died from the baby boom generation than any other generation. We had a million deaths in the US, and of that, probably better than 85% were from the baby boom generation, which means that wealth transfer accelerated during the pandemic. And as a result, we're hearing all this, hey, we can't find people. It's getting harder and harder to find people and those kind of things. Nurse shortage, those. And I'm starting to sit back and go, is all this related? Have people gotten sort of a life-changing amount of money and said, you know what, we're going to live somewhere else. And both of us don't need to work anymore. Why don't one of us stay home with the kids? And it it appears to me like that wealth transfer is, is contributing to the challenge we have in getting workers, because I think some workers are, are changing their lifestyle, at least for the short term. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. Now, it looks like we have some economic headwinds coming. Yes. And maybe pretty, pretty aggressive economic headwinds that are coming. I don't know if we can use the R word just yet, but we're probably not far away from talking about recession and those sorts of things. And so this could all pivot really, really quickly in terms of people's desire to say, hey, you know what, I had this life-changing event. I inherited this great sum of money. I opted out of the workforce. I can see that changing pretty quickly. And unfortunately, right now, there's a critical mass of jobs available, but that number is going down as employers either lay off or pull back some of those sort of job wrecks. So we'll see what the equilibrium is on this a quarter or two from now. I think from a healthcare standpoint, yes, staff storage is a significant problem. It's a significant problem in health IT. It's a significant problem in clinical organizations, the clinical side of the organization. We've never, my company has almost constant conversations now about some sort of service-based model. And we were not having that dialogue a year ago or certainly before that. They wanted to provide a service now. So that's definitely changing. I also think with the wealth transfer, it's, it might put more demands on the type of services healthcare needs to provide, right? So 
I think more and more patients wants to go live where they want to live, but they still want to have access to top tier sort of healthcare. So they're going to want to have better, better sort of remote or telehealth sort of experiences. They might want more of the elective sort of surgeries that, you know, that comes with people who have high wealth and, and can do some of those interesting sort of things. So we'll, we'll see how this all works out, but I think there are definitely implications going forward for healthcare in the type of services they need to provide. And if they don't provide those services, who's kind of waiting on the sidelines to go pick up that slack? Is it the kind of the retailers who are dabbling in healthcare more and more? So yes, that healthcare pie might grow a little bit, but I think there's others that are waiting there to go provide that that slack if the traditional providers don't 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 weigh in. Let's talk about the next generation right now. So it's June. We just had a generation of people graduate and they're saying, hey, I want to do something that matters. I want to do something with my life that matters. And they're they're looking at healthcare and they're going, hey, I think I can I can contribute there. They're technically minded. In fact, this generation is digital natives, right? So they're they're coming in, they've been on computers their entire life. Some of them are, are going to be trained. Some of them are not going to be trained. When we look at healthcare IT jobs, one of the things I'm hearing more and more is with some of the challenges we've had getting people, we have health systems that are standing up the ability to train people on certain things, right? So you can bring in a college graduate and train them to be an administrator on a lot of, a lot of different types of things within the cybersecurity world that they don't necessarily have to be cybersecurity trained to start off in that role and they can get trained as they sort of move along. Cause that's, that's really what college is all about, right? You don't come out as a cybersecurity expert. Usually you come out as a, I don't know, 80% of the people come out with a degree that proves they can do the work. And then we have to take them along. If somebody's looking for roles within healthcare IT, what, you know, what kind of roles do you think make the most sense? And you, you can focus in on cyber since that's where you're spending a lot of your time. I mean, I went to a, a VC, I, I live in Silicon Valley, so I went to a VC discussion not long ago and a very prominent VC made a very interesting statement, something along the lines of it. It was pitched towards high school students, parents of high school students, and maybe early college students. It basically said, if you want your child to have a job post-graduation, post when they graduate from college, you should focus on IT because there's going to be a plethora of IT jobs. If you want your child to have a career, they should focus on cybersecurity because we are a long way from solving that problem. And there'll be a need for that, those sort of skill sets for a long way, for, for many, many years to come. I think we need to have, see a gap from our, edu from our education institutions develop that, uh, that need to plug this gap of, of skill shortages in this area. But maybe you can provide that sort of skill shortages in, in more technical courses that are much shorter in duration. So I don't know, you know, you can get an accreditation in a course that maybe lasts a year and go solves a particular challenge within cyber or, or just generally in IT, makes you more employable in the work workplace immediately. And then you can work with that employee to go kind of expand and develop their skill sets, take on greater responsibilities over time. I, I think there's a significant opportunity now for the enterprising educator or academic institution to provide that level of curriculum and that sort of qualification program. Interesting. So if I get my business administration degree, are you saying I can go 
I could go find some industry certifications and that kind of stuff. And then when I go to a health system, I could say, look, I have a business administration degree. I know it's business related and whatnot, but I've got these, I, I've got these certifications from accredited institutions. I have, I have an aptitude for cybersecurity and that'll be a good, good way to get an entry into an organization. Or yes, or you don't go for your, your BA at all. And you seek out these sort of certifications and these kind of year long, two year long courses that give that cert that said, I'm proficient in this sort of skill set for a cybersecurity sort of role. Uh, I think those, I think those sort of jobs and those sort of skill sets are greatly needed. I, I can't tell you how many people I talk with who have the desire to go roll out some security infrastructure within their organization and they just can't do it from a staffing standpoint. They have the budget. They have the ability to go procure technology, but they can't do it from a staffing standpoint. Yeah, that's that's kind of wild. And I am hearing more and more organizations drop the college required for a bunch of their entry-level jobs because I think they're finding that college is not required. So I don't want to get the hate mail from, from our academic medical center saying, talking down on college degrees, but... One of the things I talked to Sue Shade about last week, you take away that uh, college degree required and you actually do increase your diversity because there's a whole bunch of people that just can't afford to go to college. They have to choose the two-year route or something else. And, and so you don't want to put up those artificial roadblocks if the job doesn't actually require that. But progression at some point will require additional learning, but that's true of all of us. That's true of all, and I, I think college clear is a good thing, right? But I, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's like, what does college really do for an employer? It says that this individual has the drive, the determination, the intellect, et cetera, to go, go master this subject and therefore probably has the attributes that will make that individual a good employee. And hopefully what they studied will be somewhat related to the job that they're going to. And so there is some skill sets that can be, and knowledge that can be transferred. But really, you're betting on that person and their drive and determination to go see through this significant sort of uh, initiative. But that's not the only way to validate that. It's a good way to validate that. But it's not the only way to validate whether somebody's a is a good fit for your organization. I think we probably pivoted, understandably, to the, oh, well, you've got to have that. It's just like table stakes. Maybe not, right? Yep, absolutely. Ryan, I want to thank you for your time again. Always a great conversation and appreciate you touching base with the bridge behind you, telling us that you are from the beautiful state of California. I'm in Florida in the summer. I do miss the, the cool breeze coming off the, uh, coming off the ocean there. We don't have a cool breeze down here. I guess you do. <laughs> great to see you again. Good seeing you. Take care. What a great discussion. If you know of someone that might benefit from our channel from these kinds of discussions, please forward them a note, perhaps your team, your staff. I know if I were a CIO today, I would have every one of my team members listening to a show just like this one. It's conference level value every week. They can subscribe on our website, thisweekhealth.com. They can also subscribe wherever they listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast. You get the picture. We are everywhere. Go ahead, subscribe today. We want to thank our Newsday sponsors who are investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Those are CrowdStrike, Proofpoint, ClearSense, Meditech, Cedar sinai Accelerator, TalkDesk, and Dr. First. 
Thanks for listening. That's all for now.